Let's turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. As you're turning there, I just want to thank a whole lot of ladies who put together a, a beautiful uh, women's tea, uh, Christmas tea yesterday, and uh, uh, it was a, a joy to see so many come and be a part of that. And uh, but there were there, there were so many that were behind the scenes and and doing so much to uh, make it a, a, a very memorable occasion. And so we, we thank the Lord for that. And uh, uh, I, I don't mean to put it this way, uh, but you know, I think sometimes we, we get to a holiday season and, and it's okay, one, one event out of the way and we got a few more coming. So remember, we got other things happening. Uh, but uh, but it's 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 great to know that uh, uh, the word of God was was taught uh, and uh, the hearts of those who were here were blessed and the fellowship was uh, wonderful and uh, I understand the food was was great so that uh, well I, I say I understand because I, I I snuck some in back in the back so. <laughs> But I wasn't alone. I had others, accomplices with me. All right, John chapter 21. I mentioned last week as we were just beginning the chapter, it is the last chapter of the Gospel of John. It's taken us about three years to complete this journey through this gospel. It's been a tremendous journey, actually. And we're taking three weeks to complete this chapter. But if there is any main character other than Jesus, it's the Apostle Paul. I'm sorry, Apostle Peter. Not Paul. The Apostle Peter. And uh, we, we got a little bit of an introduction with Peter last week uh, as he as is told by John that it was Jesus standing on the shore who had told him where to cast for the fish as they were fishing and hadn't caught anything. And that was when Peter jumps in the water and and, and swims to Jesus. What we're going to be dealing with uh, today is something of a study in, in types and typology. Certain things that Jesus uses to awaken the conscience of Peter. Not uh, so much to uh, chastise him as it is to bless him, to restore him to restore him from the weight of guilt that he carried because of his denying of Jesus three times before the crucifixion. And uh, that we, of course, are going to see next week, but you have to be here to hear it, so you've got you to come back. So the disciples have been told by Jesus that he was going to meet with them in the Galilee. So there at the Lake Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee. John calls it the Sea of Tiberias, and we'll see why in just a moment. That Jesus is uh, on the shore while Peter and, se and six other fishermen, which were apostles or disciples, were on the boat, and having caught nothing, uh, Jesus cries out, calls out to them, and of course we know 
what happens. They didn't catch anything, but he tells them where the fish are. So with that in mind, Peter jumps in the water. The others are dragging the, the nets over to the shore. And in verse 9, that's where we want to begin this morning. It says, as soon, as, as soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid thereon and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, a hundred and fifty-three. By the way, not any more, not any less. One hundred and fifty-three. Got it? And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. The first time, of course, we know was... uh, when he met with them after the resurrection without Thomas, the second time was with Thomas. And now we find that he's with them in the Galilee as he had told them that he would be. <clears throat> so as we began this final chapter in John's gospel last time, we found ourselves on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, where Jesus was to meet for the third time with his disciples. It was a new day, and there on the sea were seven fishermen, Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, getting ready to return to the shore after having fished all night and catching nothing. There Jesus stood on the shore, behind him a small fire of coals with smoke rising upwards in the cool, still morning air. The Lord called out to his disciples, asking them if they had caught anything, and their their answer was a despondent and a dejected no. And so he told them to cast their net on the right side of the boat and and they would find fish. And so they did, so much so that they weren't even able to haul it in for the quantity of fish. It is then that John tells Peter, it is the Lord. And the big fisherman clothed himself and sprang into the sea to get to Jesus. The others followed in the boat, dragging the net full of fish from about 100 yards out. It says 200 cubits. And what would they see as they approached the shore? They would see a fire of coals. They would see some fish already on the fire. And they would see bread. But Jesus would say to them to bring some of the fish that they caught. Now you might be asking, why is all of this so significant to our study? Well, let's remember one very important but oftentimes diminished fact. And that is that Jesus had called these fishermen to now be fishers of men. We sometimes forget that. But it is very clear that this was a significant statement by Jesus to them from the very beginning. 
It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's realized in the Gospel of John. But in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, we are told in Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, and I remember this is early on, of course, in, in Jesus' earthly ministry, very, very beginning. Uh, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. Now, the word straightway is just a very proper English word that means immediately. And they immediately left their nets and followed Jesus. And then we're told in Mark chapter 1, a very similar passage, verses 16 through 18. Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. <coughs> Excuse me. For they were fishers. They were fishermen. No mystery about that. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me. Now notice that Mark details the statement that Jesus made. Come ye after me. Come is a word of invitation. Mark, who writes this gospel, does so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but his, but his basis was the record of Peter himself. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. We can say that they certainly had the desire to follow Jesus, but when you compare all of the gospel records, they actually went back to fishing. They forsook for time, for a very short time with Jesus, but they went back to fish. How do we know this? Luke chapter 5. We saw this last week. We're going to come back to it again this week. Because there in Luke chapter 5, Verses 10 and 11, we're told, and this is now, this is after the account of Jesus being on Peter's boat uh, when the people had crowded in there at the, at the shore of the Galilee and, and Jesus was going to preach to them and he got on the, on the boat and, and Peter pulled out a little bit from the shore so that Jesus could speak to all the multitude that had crowded around. When he was done preaching, he said to Peter, let's go fishing. They went out uh, after, well, well I'm, I'm, I want to come back to that, but you all know what happened. Peter, Peter said, well, you know, Lord, we've been fishing all night, we didn't catch anything. Jesus said, let's do it anyway. But, but because, okay, you want to do it, we'll go do it. And they caught more fish than they ever caught before. So much so that another boat had to come. John, James and John probably came and, and, and helped help them haul this, this catch of fish. And the nets were breaking. Please remember that, too. So with, it, with all that in mind, in verse 10 it says, And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Peter, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. What did he just say? He said, From here on, from this point on, you shall catch men. In effect, he's saying, You're not going to catch fish anymore. You're not going to catch stinky fish. 
you're going to catch stinky men. Why stinky? Because of sin. But you're going to catch them. And you're going to bring them into my kingdom. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. At that point, for three and a half years, no fishing of fish. They watched Jesus fish for men. He was their example. It's an amazing thing that the Lord in all his wisdom and in all of his grace would assign to the Apostle John the responsibility to record the account of the deepest spiritual intimacies between the Lord and the Apostle Peter following the resurrection. And while the rest of the disciples would also be included in this fellowship with their Lord, it was Peter to whom Jesus would focus his greatest attention. And we'll talk about that more next, next time. But there was certainly a need to stir Peter's memory and to touch his conscience, not for the sake of shaming him, but for the sake of restoring him. Let's remember, and this is very important for us to remember, let's remember Peter's great confession that he gave at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16. Let's remember this. This was Peter. As, as nuts and bolts as he was as a, as, as a person, as straightforward, rough and tough. I know oftentimes we say he was, you know, foot, he had foot in the mouth disease sometimes. Things that he said. This was Peter. Matthew 6, 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they say, well, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, which is Elijah, uh, and others Jeremiah, or, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Mashiach, thou art the Messiah, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. The Father revealed that truth to Peter. And Peter confidently and courageously spoke those words. And then Jesus goes on to say, <clears throat> And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, understand that Jesus actually gave Simon the name Peter, Kephas. But Peter means a small stone, Petros. But then he said, and upon this rock, used a different word, Petra. Petra means large, large stone. In fact, Jesus was saying these words while the large stone in Caesarea Philippi 
this large stone that's a light, I mean, it's a big, big, huge stone underneath from which the, the River Jordan begins. That he says, upon this rock, not upon Peter. Peter is Petros. Upon this rock, Petra. The rock of his confession. That very confession that he gave. Upon the rock of that confession, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now that is not like if I were to take, you know, a set of keys off of my belt and, and give it to somebody and say, here, you're, you're, you're in charge now. You're in control now. As some people believe that uh, Jesus did today, you know, that, that he did back then. The reason why Peter is called the first pope of the Catholic Church. But I don't know that I'd want to give my keys to the person who later on in the same chapter is going to say something that Jesus is going to respond by saying, get thee behind me, Satan. Or maybe later on, the denial of Jesus three times. Or maybe even after the, after the, the, the blessing of, of the promise of the Holy Spirit coming upon the church there at Pentecost, that even afterwards, where Paul has to correct Peter for his hypocrisy. Do you see where we're going with that? So we're not going to, we're not going to try to, to, to talk about this particular verse. It's just what Jesus said because of his confession. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he charges his disciples in verse 20, then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. And you would say, well, why does he do that? He does it because by that time, Israel had pretty much rejected Jesus as Messiah. So he was, not telling, he was telling them, Don't, let's, we're not going to waste our time here. I, I came to go to the cross. This is all happening because I came to go to the cross. I have to go to the cross. I must go to the cross for you and for everyone who, who, who follows So that was, a great, that was a great confession of Peter. It was, a, it was a sincere confession. It was a confident confession. And it was a courageous confession. But after his denial of Jesus and the subsequent guilt that would weigh heavy upon Peter's life, this was the time that Jesus chose then, being there at the side after the resurrection of the side of, or, or, on the shore of the Galilee. This was the time that Jesus chose to probe his conscience, to probe the conscience of Peter and that, and that before his own brethren. This was not a private meeting, as we shall see next time. And so how was this probing designed? How was it that Jesus designed this for Peter? Well, there was a fire of charcoal. Just like the one that Peter had warmed his hands the night that he had denied the Lord. We bear a lot of memories of our own faults and sins, don't we? And oftentimes the Holy Spirit probes us by reminding us, especially where we haven't dealt with certain things in our life, where we haven't brought it out to him, to the Lord. John uses the same word, by the way, 
uh, for fires of coals. It's, it's the word anthrakia, which occurs here, and also only at one other place. You know where it is? John 18, verse 18. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, anthrakia, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Do you remember Peter that night? And then there were the fish, the fish on the barb, the fish on the coals. Those fish helped to recall that first catch of fish in Luke chapter 5. Something that reminded Peter of his failure to trust the Lord. To try to correct the Lord. You know, Lord, we've been fishing all night. Uh, we didn't catch anything. Might as, he might have as well said to Jesus, look, you're telling a professional fisherman here. But then add, let's add the bread to that. Let's add the bread to the fish. Because there was bread there as well. And that would become a reminder of the feeding of the 5,000 men and their families in John chapter 6. And interestingly enough, Jesus uses another word to stir that memory. Because it was at the close of, of that last event. And we'll, and we'll get to that word in a moment. But it was at the close of that last event that Peter had given his straightforward witness of, of faith in Jesus Christ again. Peter had made another confession after that long chapter, John chapter 6. And there's a thread that, that takes us through the feeding of the 5,000 men and their families, which was almost up to 15,000 people that Jesus fed from a, from a, from a little uh, lunch of a, of a young boy. And we knew, and we know that, that after all of that happened, and, and you know, they had leftovers, baskets full of leftovers from that offering. And people began to follow Jesus because they said, well, he's going to feed us. This is the problem, by the way, and I don't mean this as a, some political statement, but this is the problem with government. This is a problem when, when you know, uh, we, we, we tell people, we'll, we'll feed you, we'll take care of you, but then we'll, we'll, say you, we'll, we'll tell you what to think, too. Got to be very careful about that. Jesus, yes, had fed them, but they didn't follow him for his words they followed him because of the miracle. Because they benefited from what was passed out. But then when he finally had them all gathered, what did Jesus tell them? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you shall have no part of me. And that freaked people out. And by the way, Jesus was not preaching cannibalism because he was a Jewish rabbi. 
Cannibalism was an abomination. What was he saying? You've got to believe in me completely and totally. You've got to take me into you, into your life completely and totally. It isn't about taking a piece of bread and a little cup and, and saying some prayer so that all of a sudden that somehow mystically becomes the body and blood of Jesus. No, Jesus was just making it very clear. You've got to take me in totally and understand why I came to die on the cross. My body will take your sins on the cross. My blood will be shed for your forgiveness. And then we learn in John 6 at the very end, verses 66 to 69, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will you also go away? And then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Mashiach, Messiah, that Christ, the Son of the living God. Twice now, Peter confesses Jesus. So now here by the, by the shore of Gennesaret, where Jesus had fed the multitudes, now he was going to feed his own. And by the way, he was the same Lord, wasn't he? He was the same Lord, now spreading a table for his disciples, having on the charcoal the same kind of fish that he had started with when he fed the multitudes, because Jesus used the word opserion. Opserion, the, the fish used in feeding the multitudes from the young boy's lunch. Opserion is a, is, is a word that details a, a small fish, Kind of a, just a, you know, a single serving type fish, you know. Uh, similar to sardines, as it were. But it was a reminder of times past. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was stirring the mind and the conscience of Peter. And then the Lord gave this command before anything else could be done. The Lord gave this command in verses 10 and 11 of John 21. Let's go back there. Jesus saith unto them. He said, bring of the fish. You know what word he uses there? Opserion. Bring of the fish which you have now caught. Now please understand, Jesus is not unaware of what they caught. Because in the next phrase in, in verse 11, Simon Peter is the one who gets up and he draws the net to land. Now, the, the implication or the inference here is that it is Simon Peter alone that goes and he draws the net to land full of great fishes. That's a different word. It's not upserion. It's megasikthus. Mega, we all know what mega is. You know, this the next couple of weeks there are going to be a lot of mega sales out there. Right? In the stores. 
We know mega means great, great sales, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent. Ah! And we go crazy and we stand in line for three hours to get something that's this big. I don't know, I'm just saying. Megas ichthus. Ichthus, the word for fish. Megas, the word for great. Great fish meaning big fish. And Jesus wasn't doing this thing. Fishermen know what I mean by that, right? I caught one this big. No, they were great fish. By the way, for all that there were, the net was not broken. The net was not broken. Keep that in mind. So let me say that Jesus wasn't mistaken as to the size of the fish that was caught when he said, Upsarion, bring the Upsarion. Because remember, he knew where the fish were and what the catch would be. The fact of the matter is, for our eyes, we say great fish because they were big. For Jesus, not big. That's not big at all. For him, it's the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who created the great sea creatures. Everything's upsarion to him. <laughs> Everything's small because he's so great. He knew that they'd caught great fish. But here's the thing. To Jesus, the greater catch was yet to come in the lives of his disciples. For Jesus, those were just fish. For his disciples, what they would catch later as the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ after Pentecost, 3,000 souls one day saved. That's mega. That's mega. Peter, now glad to be up and about, rushed over to the net that was still in the water. And it seems, according to the text, that he single-handedly hauled it in. And you know what he hauled in? Exactly 153 fish. Now, you would, you would think that if it was just a big whole bunch of fish and they kind of separated them a little bit, you know, just approximate little groups of fish, you know, we would say there's about, would you say, wouldn't you say there's about 150? We kind of round everything off, don't we? No, oh, that's about 10. No, oh, that's about 20. That's about 30. That's not about 150. 100, we don't say it's about 153. Right? Come on, man. Make me feel good here. We don't say 150, yeah, about 150. No, exactly 153 fish. And amazingly, the net was not broken. The net was not torn. That unbroken net, we'll get to the number in just a minute. That unbroken net was also a message to Peter. A reminder of his earlier failure in trusting the Lord. Go back to Luke chapter 5. I should have told you to keep a bookmark there. Luke 5. As often as we go to Luke 5, it should just fall flat right onto Luke. Okay? Luke 5. Verses 4 through 6. Right before the passage that we saw last time. Now when he had left speaking, when Jesus stopped preaching, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep. 
and let down your nets for a draft. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we've toiled all night and have taken nothing. And we're good fishermen. We're, we're professionals. We know what we're doing out there. Nevertheless, oh, by the way, I added that other stuff. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. The net was breaking. It was breaking. But John makes it very clear that in John 21, the net didn't break. Tell you why in just a minute. I'm just setting you all up for a lot of stuff. Tell you why in just a second. Right after this commercial. All right, let's, let's deal with one thing at a time. So we arrive now at what can only be considered a true mystery. The reason that John records the exact number of fish in the net, 153. I have a good friend that uh, <laughs> I was reading some of his notes on uh, on the internet about uh, this, and, and you know, and, and I, I I understand people do this, you know, and they just say, well, you know, there's so many different. Uh, uh, formulations in people's mind as to what the number 153 means. Uh, he says, well, it means 153. So we'll just stop there and just say that's what it was, 153. But the reality is, of course, many a Bible commentator have pondered over the meaning of why it is 153 fish exactly. And certainly the numbering of the fish, and, and I think this is one of the great, uh, one of the great, uh, uh, reasons for it, not so much the number itself, but the fact that it was assigned as a very exact number, uh, it gives proof that John was indeed an eyewitness to the event. In other words, they counted the fish and there was 153 fish. And again, it wasn't, it wasn't rounding it off. So in, in that particular sense, in a very general sense, it is a proof that John was indeed a, an eyewitness to that event. But now when it comes to the number itself, 153, there are many and varied explanations and some quite intricate and detailed. We certainly don't have the time to go over any of them in detail, but some believe, for example, let me just give you some idea. Some believe the number refers to 153 species of fish in the sea. The fact is they would be wrong. When you do a, you know, when you, you have these oceanographers and people that, you know, you know, see uh, biologists and all of that, I mean, they, they know that that's, that's not the, the, the number of, of, of species of fish, probably a lot more. So they'd be wrong. And then there were others who would believe that the number refers just to the number of species in the Galilee itself. And that the disciples, when they brought in that catch, brought in one of each of the 153. <laughs> I think that if that had happened, that would have been noted by, by John as well. It wasn't that. Remember this, and fishermen know this, fish travel in schools. Not with books or anything, but schools of fish. That's what they call them, schools of fish, right? Okay, that was a joke. It just went over most of your heads, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
So that, that, isn't, that isn't the explanation. And then there are those who have stated, and this is, this is one of the crazy ones. I don't know where this came from. But they have stated just by taking one number of each of those, uh, well, each of the numbers. In other words, one, five, and the three, 150. One, the one refers to Shem's race. The five refers to Japheth's race. And the three refers to Ham's race. Now, if you know anything about Shem, Ham, and Japheth, you know, or Shem, Japheth, and Ham, those are the sons of Noah. And Shem with the one is supposedly one because it is out of Shem that eventually would come the line uh, that would lead to, to Jesus, you know, that would come through the line of Judah, you know, that thing. Why, why five for Japheth and why three for, for Ham? I mean, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it just, these are ideas that are just thrown out there trying to figure out why 153. There, there are some commentators that see in this number a connection now, and now we, not, we need to get serious about this. Some have seen the number in connection with salvation and in particular with the saved as being definite and specific down even to the last one. It is, an, in fact, a number that is fixed and considered as preordained. Very simply, what that is saying is that God knows exactly how many people are going to be saved to the very number. God knows it. And the reason why the net is unbroken? Because not one of those will be lost. <clears throat> so now, let me just say that this is not to say that only 153 people will be saved for eternity. But consider, if you will, for just a moment that if these fishes are a symbol of the saved. In other words, remember I said typology is going to take a big portion of our understanding of this chapter here in this section. If you will just, if you will for just a moment, if these fish are a symbol of the saved, then it confirms the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, going back to that long chapter that dealt with fish. Because in John chapter 6, listen to what Jesus said in verse 37, 37 through 40. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. But the fact that he says, the Father which uh, has sent me, that all, all of which he has given me, I should lose nothing. You consider that great catch of fish. Out of the sea of humanity, which, by the way, is the reason why John calls it the Sea of Tiberias. Because Tiberias was the Roman designation for that sea. And it being in Israel now then would, would represent, in typology, a sea of humanity, both Jew and Gentile being brought into the kingdom of God. And everyone that the Father would give to the Son, Jesus said, 
I should lose nothing. An unbroken net. I'm sure that in Luke chapter 5, that net breaking, well, a couple of fish probably popped out, went back into the sea. Happens. But that's why here John is very clear to say the net did not break. If we continue on in understanding this from the, the study of types. Remember also Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. In verse 12, before he goes to the cross, he says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost. But the son of perdition, that being Judas Iscariot, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, there is a, there's a classic book by E.W. Bullinger entitled Number in Scripture. It's a, it's a, it's a great book to understand uh, numbers as types in the scriptures. Uh, and he goes into detail, he goes actually into great detail as to the meaning of 153 throughout scripture and where it can be seen in relation to things such as the sons of, of God in the name, uh, in the Hebrew name, Ben Yah Elohim. Ben Yah Elohim, it means sons of God. And when you take, you know, every, every letter in, in Hebrew, and by the way, in, in Judaism, numbers mean everything. So it's, it's really important to, to understand that. And we're talking about you know, uh, a Jewish Messiah. We're talking about uh, Jewish disciples. So numbers were important. That's why the number 153 is important. But uh, he does this study on, 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 on the uh, name Ben Elohim. Uh, you take uh, uh, every, every letter in Hebrew has a, a number equivalent. And when you add all of these numbers up, it, it, it brings it out to 153. Uh, the same with uh, many different other phrases that, that link to this idea of the sons of God. But then you can tie that in with, with uh, a statement made in the, in the, in the uh, book of Romans by the Apostle Paul. The statement is of being joint heirs with Christ. So the, the, the Greek equivalent of that with, with the numbering system, as it were, brings the joint heirs with Christ uh, added up to the very exact same number, 153. Something to think about. Because what are we talking about as far as bringing in the fish? If they are a type of the saved, we are talking about the sons of God who would then be the joint heirs with Christ. So, that, that, again, that, these are things just to think about. But suffice it to say that there are some things, uh, that when it comes to the nature of the text that we're currently studying, that brings us all the way back to this one issue that I mentioned earlier. It comes back to the disciples being fishers of men. Fishers of men. And this all taking place in that sea of Tiberias. And I mention that again because John uses that Roman designation for the lake of Gennesaret primarily because of John's desire to bring the gospel to the Gentiles because he was in exile among the Gentiles, among the, the Roman Empire. He was in exile. 
And he, much like all the other apostles, would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to their captors, to whoever it was that was surrounding them. This is, again, the reason why verse 31 of chapter 20 is, is so significant when, when he writes, but these are written that they might believe, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So John writes a, a, a very universal gospel for Jew and Gentile, and the understanding is for both to understand the necessity of Christ in every life. And so it signifies then, the Sea of Tiberias signifies the Sea of Humanity involving Jews and Gentiles from which the saved shall be drawn. Now that's another word that's of importance here, to be drawn. Because if you go back to John 6, you don't have to go there, it'll be up here. But look at what it says. Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. Now think about the word draw here. The Greek word, uh, well, I'll get to the Greek word in a second. In the English, when, when we look at the English word draw, it has a few meanings. For example, Jesus did not mean that uh, the, the, uh, uh, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him as if he takes a piece of paper and a pencil and starts to draw him. For me, it would be like a head like this and then a stick body. That, that's my drawing. Okay, that's not obviously what he means, right? Yeah, you, yeah, come on, make me feel good. Yeah, doesn't, doesn't mean that. Okay, all right, so... Also, the word draw in English can also mean to entice, to do something to entice. <laughs> like, oh, like, like a barbecue smell. <laughs> Get that meat going. <sighs> draw apple pie on the, you know, on the, on the windowsill. You see, that, that, that's not what it means here. Literally, the word draw in the Greek means to drag. It means to drag. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> excuse me, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me drag him in an net. Chapter 6, remember, fish from beginning to end. And I will raise him up at the last day. Isn't it interesting that the words in verse 8, going back to John 21, and the other disciples came to the little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were, dragging the net with the fishes. Verse 8, dragging. Same word. Same word. And also in verse verse 11, I believe. Well, no, the... uh, the word drew, which was the one we uh, draw, is the one we saw. Exactly the same meaning in the Greek. Exactly the same understanding. It's a little different word in the Greek, but it, it comes from the same root. That's the, that's the point. It comes from the same root, to drag. So let's not forget that all of these reminders were not just for Peter, but they were also for the disciples as well. Notice the general uh, statement of Jesus back in Matthew. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Or in Mark, come ye after me and I will make you to become fishers of men. 
But then in, in Luke 5, he speaks directly only to Peter and he says, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. What do we know about Peter at the beginning of John chapter 21? He said, I go a fishing. I go a fishing. And the other disciple said, We're going with you. Peter still had an influence. And whether he was, as we said last time, whether he was just antsy or maybe he just resigned to the fact that uh, you know, Jesus hadn't shown, well, we've got to be busy. So now we come to the last three verses of our, of our text today. Verses 12 through 14, Jesus saith unto them, Come and die. Come and die. Jesus was not only the chef, he was the maitre d'. And he said, come. Come and die. It's an invitation. And none of the disciples durst ask him, who art thou? In other words, none of them dare ask, are, are, are you Jesus? Knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus then cometh. And notice these particular words. Jesus then cometh. He taketh bread and giveth them. He cometh, he taketh, and he giveth. And fish likewise. The bread and the fish. Do you remember who I am now, guys? You don't have to doubt anymore. You don't have to worry about whether I am him or not. Or I am he or not, but I am he. <laughs> and this is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after uh, that he was risen from the dead. There are three statements made by Jesus in the Gospel of John that can only be considered as invitations. In John 1 verse 39, where Jesus said unto them, Come and see. Now, there were disciples of John the Baptist that were following Jesus now after John had pointed out that that was the, the, uh, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And they, they began to follow Jesus, but they wanted to know where he lived. And so they asked him, and he said, Come and see. So, very simply, invites them to come with him. And they came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Uh, there was another. Uh, Invitation back in John chapter 7. Another use of that word come. John 7 verses 30, uh, verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast. The, the feast of tabernacles actually. Uh, Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now that was a very general cry. It was a cry to everyone who could hear him. If any man thirst, he said, let him come unto me and drink a strong invitation and then of course here in verse 12 to his own disciples he says come and die as far as John was concerned it had all begun in very much the same way right there by the lake everything that happened before there at the lake was now brought to a, 
a near conclusion in the mind and the hearts of his disciples. It was where he and Andrew, that being John, had listened to John the Baptist who had pointed out Jesus to them. And they left John to follow Jesus at his invitation. His invitation was come, come. The Lord first used the word in Genesis, by the way, because it was an invitation to Noah and his family. Noah in particular, to come into the ark. The very ark that Noah was commanded by God to build. In Genesis 7 verse 1 it says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou, and all thy house, into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Come thou, and all thy house. Come. It's an invitation. And the Lord not only invites in, in, in the first book of the Bible, but in the last book of the Bible, in, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 22, verse 7, the last chapter of the Bible. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. That invitation is yours as well. It's given to you, especially if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Especially if you are not sure if, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior. If you're not sure that you've made that commitment to Christ. He says, come. And let, let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst, come. And whosoever will. You know, this idea that, 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 that you know... Uh, that the scriptures or, or, or that the Lord says, you know, that, you know, he's, you know, he, he does have a, a number. There's, there's a number that he knows is going to be saved. But that there are those that are, that, 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 that are saved for salvation. And then there are those that, that he has, has, has preordained to be, uh, you know, to be lost. That's not right because of this one word. Whosoever. Whosoever will Come. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. One word can impact a, a, a theology. One word. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. That doesn't negate the, the work of the Holy Spirit in, in a person's life who comes to the Lord. And, 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 and it doesn't give anyone the power to save themselves. That's not what it's about. The last two verses of Revelation says, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Not used as an invitation, but as a statement of fact. I'm coming quickly. In other words, when he comes, he comes in the twinkling of an eye. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now we invite him. Well, Lord, if you're coming, come quickly. Maranatha. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Yens, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That word come as an invitation dissolves and melts away distance. 
It brings saints and sinners to him, to the one who takes away sin and its accompanying sadness and replaces them with the joy and the gladness of the Lord. But with these disciples, they first had to get over their being intimidated by Jesus. They durst not ask him. They dare not ask him, are you the Lord? They knew it was him, but they didn't know how to act in his presence. To them, he was the same but different. You ever said that about anything? It's the same but different. In this case, it was. It was the same Lord but different because now he was risen. They loved him, but they struggled being familiar with him. They had been more aware of his humanity than his deity, but now they were much more conscious of his deity, remembering you know, remember that they were still learning how to deal with the risen Christ. So I'm sure they sat down at breakfast that morning and, and, and kind of, you know, <laughs> didn't know how to act in front of Jesus. So the Lord has to take the initiative. Jesus then cometh. He taketh the bread. He giveth them the bread. And he giveth them the fish. He says, here I am. Can you, can you see the hand of Jesus? What will you see when you see the hand of Jesus? What will you see? He's serving them. The risen Lord, the one who was crucified. And loved them still. You see, in that culture, to eat someone's food created a bond of friendship. But this was, just, this was just setting the stage for what was to come for Peter and his conscience. Let's, let's close here by remembering the words of Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11. I refer to it many times, but I want you to consider this as an invitation to you. To you who may not be sure that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Or to you who are a believer, but you have struggled with so many things in your life. And you, and you continue to bear a burden that Jesus said, I will bear for you. Remember these words. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. If he is your Lord, then trust him. If he is your Lord, then let him lead you. Let him guide you. Let him strengthen you. Let him bear your burden. Let him carry you. Don't be proud. Be submissive because he loves you with an everlasting love.